G'day. Welcome to another episode of Adelaide United Legends. So I just wanted to set the scene for this conversation because we actually recorded it back in early 2020. It was before the COVID-19 pandemic had really taken hold in Australia and before we were all in lockdown. Obviously, after that, that interrupted plans to record further episodes until now, but everything we talked about here is historical and still relevant, so we still wanted to release it for you. Finally, we had a few audio issues initially, so the first eight minutes of this are a backup recording that is fairly raw, but if you can get through that, then it's crystal for the rest of the way. Besides that, I was probably a little intimidated speaking to Cozzy, and I think you can hear that, unfortunately, but it's still worth a listen to hear him talk about his career and formative years of the club, so thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy it. And Adelaide United... Travis Dodd, up like a salmon, a spawning salmon. Jitsa, a striker, and the peak of his powers. Si, senor, si. Welcome to the Adelaide United Legends podcast. John Cosmina, welcome. Hello, Tim. How you going? Good, mate. I didn't know it was a Legends series we were doing. I thought it was just something that you did every week. <laughs> well, with the name, we might change it. But we'll see. It's, uh, the idea is to get former personalities or legends such as yourself to come in and uh, have a chat about your time, but not just about that, but about your career and football in general. So we have talked before uh, about the foundation of the club uh, and your role at the time and, and you know, uh, what went on around then in 2003. And you can find that on our YouTube channel. Uh, just search 15 years and you can see that. Um, you can find it on our website as well. Um, so we're not going to focus too much on that, that um, those initial years. But um, your time um, as LA United head coach is fairly well documented. Like anyone can go on and search that. Uh, but let's start at the beginning and the stepping stones um, that you went through to becoming a professional footballer growing up in Adelaide, that sort of thing. Oh, life was a lot different. I mean, I'm 64 this year, so you're talking about a long time ago. Um, but you grew, I just grew up playing football in the backyard. Dad was Polish, mum mm. was an Aussie, so but football was a game or soccer back then was a game we played. Grew up in Port Adelaide. Yeah, right. uh, we were the Wogs and the Cream Puffs <laughs> that uh, that played the Sheila sport. Yeah, right. And, um, Did you get that a bit? Oh, all the time. Yeah. But you know what? We ended up having a lot of footy blokes actually playing soccer for the school because dad, um, there was no soccer at Larks Bay Primary mm -hmm. uh, when I was going through and I think it was probably, I might have been grade five um, or grade six, um, we got a team organised and a lot of the footy guys actually wanted to play and so it turned out alright. Our first game we played against Pennington Hostel, at, uh, which is gone now but that's where all of the, the migrants from England came. Right. And all of the kids could play. And I think our first game was, um, I do remember it. I can even remember what sort of day it was. It was 23 nil. Right. Um, so we learned, <laughs> learned that there was a bit of a golf between the Poms and, and the local boys. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like it. So um, tell me about uh, uh, Polonia. Um, uh, well, dad being, dad being Polish, um, he played for the club um, when he first arrived in Adelaide. And uh, then... Ended up getting married and had kids. Well, I was the eldest. Um, and he sort of gave it away for a while. And then he went back to the 
the community he got involved, he ended up being a um, secretary, I think they called him, secretary manager or something like it was then. And it was all volunteer. And um, so he used to work from home, uh, but he started. we started spending time at the club. And I've actually have lots of conversations about this. I was talking to a guy about it this morning that, you know, you'd go to um, watch Polonia play on a Saturday and the juniors, which were under 18s at the time, would kick off at um, 12 o'clock, I think it was. Okay. And we'd be there for the junior kickoff, and mm. you wouldn't leave till well after the first team finished. And yeah. sometimes I think um, when I was first started, there wasn't any juniors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Polonia had two teams, Polonia Red and Polonia White. They played in the under-16 junior Colts. Um, and they had a lot of good footballers that actually went on to play senior football for the club. Uh, John Chahinsky, Joe Larecki, uh, just to name a couple. And... Um, they, um, we used to sometimes watch them because they'd play Saturday morning on yeah, occasion. Okay. Yep. Yeah, right. So, because um, from what I understand, is your your father founded the club. No. no. Oh, look, was I don't know. I can't ask him now because oh, right. he's dead. But um, look, there was a... When they... The club was first, I think, up in the Adelaide Hills somewhere. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I'm not too sure where. So I'd when did they move to Croydon? I'd, um, probably 1950. The club was no. They were in the start founded in the hills in 1950, and then they moved down to the city. They played. I know they played. Remember watching my father. Got vague memories of as a kid playing at Weagle Oval at Plimpton. Oh yeah, yeah. And um, I remember that. Uh, they moved to Croydon, uh, probably well, sometime after I was born, obviously. Yeah. Um, and the story is that you know they basically went out there with you know trails and. And pick and shovel and, and created a football field. And then they yeah, built right. a clubhouse and then, uh, or a dressing shed. It was just a big open room that had a curtain down the middle yeah, for the okay. home team and the away team. And one sort of room with two showers in it right. for, for all the players. Oh, wow. So it was interesting. But yeah, um, it was rough and ready. But you know what? It was it had character and it had it had a culture. And yeah. it represented the Polish community. And it got yeah. all the, the, the community together. And that whole area around Croydon Park... Um, it didn't matter which direction you went in, there were Polish people living in the streets. Yeah, right. Well, not in the streets, but they had yeah, houses in yeah. the streets. Yeah, right. So what do you remember about... Yeah, you played for the club too. Um, so what do you remember about... Oh, it was just the, the passion of it all. It was it meant so much to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rivalries that, that we developed. I mean, we grew up... I grew up hating uh, Juventus, which is now Adelaide City, or Hellas, which is... Now West Adelaide, and, um, you know, there were strong, really, really strong rivalries. Yeah. And they were the money clubs. Right. The Greeks and the Italians, and they had the money and the Poles didn't have the money. So there was a lot of kids came through Croydon, and that's probably why, now that I think about it, that's maybe why I, when I, when I have coached, I've, I've been prepared to invest in youth mm-hmm. and give kids a chance. Because yeah. I played my first game there as a 16-year-old turning 17. And lots of other good players came through there, but they're all local kids. You know, the Kalecki brothers, um, to mention just a couple. Roger Romanovic played for Australia. Henry Kalecki played for Australia. Okay. Um, it was yeah. it was a really good culture within that, but it was all from the local community. Yeah, right. So what what were some of your cultural and football influences at that time? Oh, the senior players. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, we had a reunion um, last August, and it was when... The club was, it was the last official home game for Polonia slash Croydon Kings at that ground because of the South Road extension. Yeah. 
So we got all got together and I came down from Brisbane and people come from interstate and anybody that um, had sort of been around for a while um, turned up. It was a great night, really good night. And But, you know, I would talk to... So I'll use the Kalecki brothers as an example because I'm, I'm probably the youngest out of that group that was there by at least five years. Right. And so, you know, as a 12-year-old, I was 13-year-old, I was watching yeah, Henry Kalecki, who was five or six years older than me, Roger Romanovich in goal. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry Pettit, who... Um, was playing in the club. Now, Jerry's got to be, he's not far off at 80. English bloke, been at the club, loved the place. He stayed there for years and years. Um, you know, the, when they brought Polish players out, a guy called Eddie Tipek, there was um, Eugene Novak, uh, a guy called Henry Manka. Henry Manka and Eddie Tipek, well, I think the three of them actually played for Poland right. in European internationals. Um, but Europe was a lot different then. And so it was easier for them to have a life come emigrating to Australia. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, Henry, I worked with, with Henry Manka. Kalecki's had a, a concreting business and they gave all of the poles that came out in the boat work. Right. So, you know, well, you know, you've got a guy that played, you know, he's a European football international mm-hmm. um, and he swings a pick and shovel during the day. Yeah, right. That's just yeah. how it was back then. But So I learned from all of those guys. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no TV. You could watch a little bit of English football once a week uh, from what I can recall. And um, it was just the quality of the players that came out were great, but it wasn't just them. There were players that, like Beograd, for example, White City, had Serbian internationals. You know, the Hellas had a couple of Greek players and some good English players that came out as well. So there was a and there was a there was a fairly decent age gap between me and a lot of the older blokes. But because we spent so much time at football, we never missed matches. We went every game. Mm-hmm. Um, you spend time that you learn. From the older players yeah. you know you weren't watching you know a 10 second clip on youtube about a ronaldo backhill or a step over you're watching guys you know in the nitty-gritty that just do the basics really really well yeah right okay so from australia not to gloss over too much of your career here before you went um overseas but i'm intrigued to know um you went from adelaide to arsenal in 1978 mm-hmm. um so Tell me a bit about that. How did that move eventuate and, um, you know, why did it end after one season? Um, it's complicated. It, um, I was actually – Arsenal – no, I'll go back further. I was playing for the state team, South Australia. <clears throat> and Tottenham Hotspur came here in 1976 and their manager was Terry Neal. Mm-hmm. And I think we actually – I can't remember what the score was. I think it was one all. And I had a really good game just out here when it was called Hindmarsh then and – Things were a lot different and um, had a really good game. And then the next year I was playing for Australia and Arsenal were touring mm-hmm. and we played in a tournament. There was Australia, Arsenal, Celtic and Red Star. Right. And I had a really good tournament. They had a blinder against Arsenal and Terry Neal was the manager at Arsenal. So anyway, I ended up getting introduced to a guy that was an agent, which back in those days is a lot different to, to how it is now. And he had organised a contract for me from what I can remember at Tampa Bay Rowdies because the, the American League had just kicked off and that was when Pelé were playing there and you know there's lots of guys from Europe um, went and played the New York Cosmos and all around the place and Noddy Alston who'd played for Australia had been at Tampa Bay and um, so I had a contract there and or an agreement to go there and I was pretty much not packed but excuse me we had um, 
I wasn't far off of leaving, getting prepared to go, and um, I got a call saying, look, we've got a chance you could have a go at Arsenal. What, would you, what do you think? And I said, oh, yeah, okay. But I was pretty naive. I mean, I'd been to England before that, and I travelled and thought I was a bit of a big shot, but um, travelling to England, you know, in a group, yeah. a football team, and living there, two different stories. But yeah. So that's how that worked out. Mm-hmm. You know, Terry Neal had seen me play twice. He was the agent, the manager. You know, the agent did the deal, and off I went. All right, so there couldn't have been too many Australians playing overseas at that point. There wasn't. No. So were you one of the first? Oh, the guys had, there's blokes I know, like, um, I think um, Cole Curran and Ray Bartz, who both played for the, well, both went to Germany in 74. And they'd been overseas. Um, of course, yeah. And Dave Mitchell, did he, was he after no, you? No, Mitchell was well after me. Right. Like a long time, five years after me. Right. Um There'd been a couple of Aussie blokes, more from Sydney, that had yeah. been um, so Sydney first South Australia, Melbourne probably. Based. Yeah, yeah, probably. Right. So, yeah, so there wasn't any Aussies in the in the league at the time, and it was, so I remember I got off on the plane here in Adelaide. It was forty odd degrees, and I got off at the other end. It was minus five and snowing, and I'd never seen snow, and I'd, I can remember never being that cold in my life. Oh, really? Yeah, it was. It was. It just froze. It was. It was and then it took me six weeks to get a a work permit so I just trained for six weeks and got smashed to keep your fitness up and yeah. you know the, the the not it was just it wasn't just the I guess the culture shock but the physical shock to your system coming out of an Aussie summer um, and going to like it's a you know 35 degree temperature turnaround yeah yeah and there's the, not a lot of squad rotation over there either was there so no, at that point there's one sub I trained with the first team as often as I could, and then I, I trained with both the first or the reserves, and that was all I had. And um, and but there was no games at the end of it, so it took me about six or seven weeks, from what I can remember, to get the work permit. And then I started playing in the reserves, and I think I sat on a bench twice for the first team before the the season actually ended. But they had one sub in those days, so yeah. I didn't get any I didn't get any time game time. Yeah, we, uh, I think um, it was actually Nathan, your son, that showed me uh, so a clip of. A game that you did come on in against Leeds United. That was season the second season. I went the halfway through seventy seven, seventy eight. Right. Um, and I sat on the bench. I think from memory, one of them was Derby. And I'm trying to think who the other team was. It might have been, um, could have been Birmingham. I can't remember. So, yeah. So the next season, I went back for came back for a few weeks at the end of the season. Um, Arsenal. Lost the FFA uh, the FA Cup final to Ipswich that year. I went to Wembley, watched that happen. I remember Eric Gates got the winner. Um, good player as well. And then um, I went back for pre-season and actually did all right because I, I was a good athlete. So the training hard wasn't an issue for me. Um, and I actually played in a number of um, number of pre-season games. Got some good good match minutes. I remember you know getting playing against um, Borussia Dortmund and. Because we went to Germany for two weeks as well. Okay. So I had a, some good time over there. So I thought it was doing all right. And then I got a, off the bench in the first game of the season. And then um, it was sort of hot and cold after that. Right. And you, you didn't feel, you obviously didn't feel out of your depth or anything like that. You were able to take to it yeah. pretty well. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, what was some of the, was there a noticeable difference when oh, you got over there? Oh, it's massive. Yeah. It, um, just the training. Right. To start with, I mean, everything, I remember as a kid, um, well, not so much as a kid, but as a young adult, um, playing for South Australia against English sides, touring sides that came out. Uh, or it wasn't just English sides, but European sides, probably a better description. Um, and it was just the pace. 
and they were strong because they train every day. You know, we were part-timers. We two nights a week. That's all we trained. And then, I mean, as a young kid, you're training and it's probably a good thing for – good message for younger blokes here. It's not what you do at training. It's what you do away from training. And so, you know, we're the – as kids growing up, my brothers and I would be in the backyard the whole time with the ball or we'd be playing at school. You know, we used to play, and I go back to the, the Largs Bay Primary being the, like the WOG contingent kicking a soccer ball around. We actually got the thing called bin soccer started on the, on the oval at, uh, at Largs Bay Primary's Armour Tree Flat. We had to walk there and you'd get 50 or 60 kids with a bin in the middle of the oval and it'd be one tennis ball and everyone was trying to score. It was ruthless, it was, but it was good. It was fun. So, you know, it, it, it did have its benefits. So, but that's what I mean. It's, it's important that you, you know, training's training, but it's yeah. what you do away from training. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And were you at the, um, the FA Cup final, the Arsenal one, where they beat Man U 3-2? No, I'd come back by then. Right. Um, I had an opportunity to come back. West Adelaide sort of expressed interest in me coming back. And I was thinking, this is going nowhere. I'll, I'll be honest, I pulled the pin too early. Um, I mean, I went through the homesick sort of stuff for a stage there, um, but I just thought, I'm not I'm banging my head against a brick wall here. And it's one of, one of my biggest regrets because I should have just stuck it out. But I had, I was naive, like I said before, I you know, went over there thinking I was a big shot. And um, How old were you at this time? 21. 21, okay. And how long did it take for you to realise that perhaps you'd made a mistake? Oh, I'd probably been back a, a year, came back and had a bit of money in the bank and sort of goofed off and had a good time and um, football wasn't really working well and I thought I've got to pull my head in and, and get back to this because I've wasted a good good chance here and I'm going to waste another one if I don't get my, get into, get my backside into gear. So um, I ended up leaving here and moved to Sydney. Yeah, that was going to be my next thing. So, Because uh, this is around the start of the NSL, correct? No, the NSL started 77, so I played so for West Adelaide, right, okay. season one, Arsenal season two, yep. halfway back, halfway through the season in season three. Right, okay. So, yeah, so take, take me inside Sydney City and, and playing for them back in those Interesting days. Interesting culture, run by pretty much Frank Lowy and a, another wealthy Jewish guy called Andrew Lederer. Um, they had a really simple philosophy, didn't want to win everything. That was it. Um, they were the a good well-paying club at the time um eddie thompson the scott was the ter- the coach and the reason he chose me was that funnily enough west adelaide that year we had sydney city's coach jerry Childy. he'd come to adelaide and so eddie thompson stepped into his shoes sydney city beat us six or seven one we might have even been nil at um es marks field which is their home ground in randwick and even at the end of the game, I was still trying to make get something out of it because you just don't pack it in. And um, Tomo actually liked that. And I got a call towards the end of that season saying, you're interested in coming to Sydney. So I went over there, we did a deal and that was it. So it was a good culture at the club. You know, they, they were a successful team. They had experienced players. Um, Sydney, Sydney and Adelaide were light years apart in in terms of how they just viewed life and culturally. And they're both Australian cities. Sydney was, was a big city. Adelaide was still a small town back then. I mean, some people tell you it still is. Yeah. Um, and it can be as well, but there's, that's a, there's a good side of that as well. 
Um, but Sydney was just a big place. And I ended up had six pretty happy years there. And then they folded up. Yeah. So they're uh, Sydney or not even Sydney, Hakoa. They're just Hakoa. They're just Hakoa now. now. Yeah. Yeah. But they, Frank Lowy just pulled them out of the league. Right. Said, I'm sick of funding this. I'm throwing good money after bad. Gee. Okay. Well, tell me. And that was the start of 1987. Right. So I was going to ask about the, the NSL culture in general back in the 80s. Because we hear a lot of a lot of stuff about how good that culture was. Oh, look, the life was different then. You know, most players worked. Um, there were very few, if any, that were f- what you'd call full time. And even then, we trained three nights a week, so you couldn't really be full time. Right. So it was just a, a given that you'd get up and go to work in the morning, and you'd either go home afterwards or you'd go straight to training. And then go to the pub for a few beers afterwards, because that was always the best part of training. <laughs> um, but it was it was a different culture. Um, there are a lot of good pros. I call them. I use that word. Um, <clears throat> not saying that they were professional, but they were just in terms of how they went about their business. They were professional mentally, and in terms of their commitment to the game. Uh, a lot of guys from um, England, um, a few European blokes, a couple of South Americans. Um, and then you had the the ethnic culture mm-hmm. within Australia because all of the clubs, were, you know, all had some ethnic background. Um, so they football was like no different to my background growing up in a Polish community. It was the same for the Greeks or the Italians or uh, the Maltese or um, whoever else you get. There were obviously clubs that were um, British-based as well had a strong English contingent. So they were all good footballers. So it was a decent competition. Mm. And what about, um, you know, playing for the Socceroos? At that time as well. I know you're playing in the 70s, but well, into the 80s. And that started before um, 76 was my first game. That was, yeah. uh, I got into the Socceroos in season three of playing for Polonia. I played my first game about a month or a couple of months short of my 20th birthday. Um, here at Hindmarsh against Bologna. And we won comfortably and I had a good game. So at the end of that year, we went on a trip because it was beginning of a World Cup campaign and we used to go away for six or seven weeks. So we went to, you know, um, Singapore, Hong Kong, went to China, and we were the first, 1976, we would have been the, we were one of the first, if not the first, um, Western sort of team to go into communist China. They'd opened the, recently opened the, the borders. So that was interesting. Then we went to Europe after that, went to Holland, Germany, um, went to Israel, Played against the Israel national team there. They had a couple of full internationals. Um, I think China, actually we played China twice, but I don't know if they were classified as full internationals because no one really knew where China stood then. Uh, And then we went to England and finished up playing club sides over there. So those sorts of trips were great. So for me, getting in the team as a 20-year-old and then getting picked on that trip, I remember I didn't know, you didn't get phone calls or no emails and stuff and... Um, remember, I was working for Kalecki, funnily enough. I'd been to uni for a year and then um, I'd, during that year I'd been p- picked in a under-23 side to go to, uh, to Ind- uh, Indonesia mm-hmm. in 1975 and it was right in the middle of the exam, so I deferred that. And then come exam time, at the end of the uni year, I got picked to play for like an Australia B team. Russia were touring and they played here, Perth, Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney. Um, so I ended up going to Melbourne, Perth and Brisbane. I didn't go to Sydney, uh, but I went and played for Australia B. But you, 
And that was, so I thought, this ain't going to work. Um, so I packed it in. It was easier. So I just went and laboured for 12 months. But you know what? From a football perspective, it was one of the best things I ever did because it made me, like, strong. Seriously, I, got, I was fit and I was strong because, you know, we didn't use bobcats and stuff. It was all a pick and a shovel. Uh, and it was fun. I worked with a great gang of blokes and had a lot of fun and uh, it was good times. And I remember sitting in a truck. I stopped to buy a paper because I knew they were going to announce the team that day, the travelling team. And I was sort of confident. I'd played three games for Australia at that stage. Um, one of them was a full international against Hong Kong, which is at, um, which is where the Mariners play now, except the pitch was completely different to, to what it is now. And um, I remember I read my name in the paper and it was like I wanted to punch a hole in the roof of the truck. I was so excited and I was driving as well. <laughs> <laughs> so it, wow. uh, it was great. It really yeah. was. So I look forward to that sort of stuff. And I, I remember that quite well. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, like, how, going back to what you're saying about working and um, training three nights a week, so how do you juggle work, training for your club, and then the international team? Back well, then? you just you travelled. I mean, we used to, once I made the Socceroos, it, not so much the first year, but the second year, I ended up, the NSL started in 1977, sorry, and I ended up transferring from Polonia to West Adelaide for that season one, and they had some influence and they got me a job with Coca-Cola. So I was like, a, and all I did was a great job. It um, got a company ute and filled the back of it with balls and went around to schools and had a yeah. kickabout with kids. So it was like a PR job. So that was the easy part of it. Uh, training, you know, was training three nights a week. When right. it was labouring, I was only training two nights a week. But like I said, really? I did, yeah. Wow. But I did enough, you do enough work. Um, yeah, that you were fit. In the trenches every day, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right. That's crazy. Yeah, it's, um, it's crazy to think. Like, obviously, you know, football's come a long way in this country. Um, and I guess it always starts out of, as a bit of a, um, in a, in a grassroots kind of a fashion, I guess. But it's just insane that, you know, players like yourself are representing Australia and, you know, playing for clubs like Arsenal and things like that. And yet back here it was, you know, it's almost like, training for an amateur or an MPL team or something similar now. Oh, like amateur MPL team, teams are probably MPL playing, training, training, training more. A lot more yeah. than we did. And training go. now is a lot more sophisticated than it used yeah. to be as well. Yeah. But the guy that I mentioned earlier, Henry Manka, the Polish international, was the coach when I started. Right. Well, there was actually a guy called Peter Yaksha who locals old enough will remember him and he was an unbelievable player. Excellent coach as well, good motivator. He gave me a um, – he had me in the state under-16 team for a couple of years and then – Ended up coming to Polonia the season after that, and that's when I got my debut. Yeah, right. um, so, look, yeah, there were, they, were, they were good coaches, but training was simple. Yeah. You know, you made the most of training, and I think that's what kids maybe have too big an expectation. They, they want the coach to do something wonderful for them at training to make them a better player. It's not going to work. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to get the most out of training. Don't expect the coach to give you the most out of training. Mm -hmm. Speaking of coaches, Eddie Thompson and Frank Arrett, what was it like to play under them? Um, chalk and cheese. Frank was a maniac. Tomo, <laughs> Tomo worked more on, on player management. We, well, you know, we, I could tell you now, we probably trained exactly the same Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, or Friday, sorry. Um, did we do Thursdays? No, we did Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. We didn't train Mondays. We used to play Sundays then. Um, then you could probably set you could could set your clock by training. You like you knew what you'd be doing at if we started at six thirty or seven. Um, you knew what you'd be doing at quarter past because it was fairly routine. But we had fun. 
We played five sides most of the time. I remember Tomo tried doing some coaching and some shape stuff and everyone got the got the shits and said, no, we don't want to do this anymore. Let's, <laughs> let's organise a, a, a you know, kick around. We'll have more fun. You get more out of it. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. remember going there some nights and we'd, we'd play head tennis for two hours. Yeah. I, I can say... But we but, won everything. Well, I can say, yeah, that's a fair point. I can say that, you know, even at an amateur level, I've not played professional at all. But, you know, it is. It's more fun. And you do get more out of it. Team cohesion, whatever, you know, that sort of thing seems to it does go a long way yeah yeah and you got lots of touches on the ball and um so we did that but the intensity was there and there was quality in the playing group to start with i think that that sort of is a fine ideal but if you've got blokes that um aren't quite up to scratch um i mean the it was ruthless for young players then like seriously ruthless you you ever got a young guy come into the first team of all the senior players you said it was kick you right <laughs> So, well, I was old enough. Initiation, I got this shit. Yeah. That's yeah. how it was. And that's, I remember that. It was like that at Croydon. I remember getting my hand stepped on, you know, deliberately because a bloke had, the, had his um, nose out of joint because I'd done something he didn't like uh, and used to get kicked. But you just got on with the job because it's yeah. how it was. Yeah. How did Eddie Thompson or even Frank uh, influence you as a coach? Oh, well, Tom, I was, as I said, a man manager. Um, from a football point of view, it was he, he really gave me – I guess good insight into how important important it is to, you know, be part of a team. Frank was different. Frank was a lot more well European as well. Um, he, Frank was more meticulous in terms of what he wanted at training, and he would stop and start. And I mean, Tomo was a club coach, and Frank was a national coach. Uh, Tomo ended up joining Frank. I went to the Olympics in Seoul in '88, and Frank was the head coach, and Tomo was the assistant. So I was like the good cop, bad cop, but but Frank was smart he picked a he changed the team around from the coach he succeeded uh, which was les shineflug les picked some players that probably weren't up to scratch but um he left a lot of players out that, that were good enough but they didn't fit his um i guess his cultural philosophy um had a bit of rat bag in him whereas frank loved the rat bags loved it yeah. he because he knew he could rely on character when the chips were down um, so that was what you learned from Frank as well. I mean, we could, Frank used to, he was funny because we'd, he'd, we'd do a video session except to go for two hours and I didn't have clips then, you had no, nothing to cut it up, you just watched the game. And he'd stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. And he'd, Frank had been a lather of sweat and he'd, it was like he'd play the game himself and he was yelling and screaming and thumping the table and stuff like this. And, you know, <laughs> we were sitting up the back sort of, so you know, look around, there'd be one guy would be asleep and, um, the other blokes would be sort of, you know, playing noughts and crosses or so. It was, but you know, it, it, Frank still did what he did, yeah. and it was he had a good environment in that squad, um, and that's probably why there was a little bit of success. He gave the team belief, whereas the Socceroos prior to that, and I was part of that. Well, excuse me, I was part of that um, scenario. The failed World Cup bid in '78 for Argentina and '82 for Spain. Right. Uh, Frank came in for the '86 World Cup in. Where was that? 86 was in Spain. 80, 82 was Spain, 86 was Mexico. Yeah, 86, yeah. 86 was Mexico, that's right. Yeah. yeah, so Frank came in for the 85, 86 campaign. Um, but we didn't believe in ourselves enough prior to that. Um, we had some good players in the side, but there wasn't, you know, they talk about that soccer fighting spirit. It didn't really start to develop until you had a lot more, I guess, Australian bred players 
in the group. We had some European, we had a couple of Scottish guys, Kenny Murphy and Joe Watson, for example, that were fantastic players. But Terry Greedy was a goalkeeper. He's from um, northern New South Wales up near the beach. Um, yeah, Charlie Yankos learned his football in Melbourne. Alan Davidson learned his football in Melbourne. Dave Ratcliffe was English. He grew up in Leeds. Um, Graham Jennings, the left back, used to learn his football in Newcastle. You know, so you had good local players. Oscar Crino, South American, Argentinian, but grew up in Australia. Uh, myself up front, Dave Mitchell grew up in Australia, um, despite being Scottish. Frank Farina grew up in Australia. So that's what really then I think started to develop the Socceroos. Prior to that, it was um, – and these look, I take nothing away from these blokes because I, I love the guys that I first got in the team with. I'm still in touch with a few of them. and. Um, it's, you know, I have really fond memories of that time, but it probably really started to develop after that 74 World Cup. There was a good culture before that. And I mean, you talk to the old guys, Odia Bonnie and um, Jimmy Fraser and, and players like that, that that went to that Vietnam tour in 68 where the, you know, the rocket shells were going off um, not far from their hotel and all that sort of. So that was the beginning of it, but I think it really sort of bedded itself in when Frank came in and, and brought a lot of Australian guys into the squad. Right. And you did you mentioned, um, you know, ahead of the 86 World Cup. So in, in 1985, when we played uh, Scotland, um, and that Scottish team had some serious players in it. Graham Sooners, Kenny Dalglish, Jim Leighton, Alex McLeish, Steve Nicol, Frank McAvenny, Gordon Strachan, Willie Miller. Um, what was it like coming up against a, a stacked Scottish oh, team? Like it that? was tough. I mean, we I still have nightmares about that header at um, <laughs> Olympic Park in Melbourne. And I'd Nathan still, did mention that, that you would say that. I still wouldn't have done anything different. It, um, Jim Layton was in goal. And if you ask most Scottish supporters, they'll say that is the best game he ever played for Scotland. He was like Superman deflecting bullets. He threw his arms up and the ball would hit him. He didn't make a save. It just spread. Um, one shot from Jimmy Batiks in the second half hit him in the head. He misjudged it completely, but it hit him in the head and went out instead of in. It just flicked over the bar. That sort of stuff. It almost like it wasn't meant to be. But um, I remember Hamden Park, the first game, and um, you could not – there were 60,000 people there. And as close as you and I are now, you could not hear each other speak. It was that loud. It was seriously – like it was – I sort of thought – he understood passion, but not like that. It was something different. It was something to behold. So, yeah, it was. It was good. And, I mean, I'd funny, I knew Graham Soonest because he'd actually had a guest stint at West Adelaide. He didn't play in the first game, but he played out here in the second one. Yep. Um, I remember those were So, yeah. So, um, yeah, so it was. It was, um, it was sort of like an opportunity lost. I think the biggest loss was the one before when New Zealand beat us 2-0. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You talk about coaches, Frank Arick instilled belief and enthusiasm and steel into the team in 86 in, or the 80, 86 campaign team. Rudy Guttendorf, who was a coach, who recently deceased, God rest his soul, um, killed the team. Killed it in 82. And we played New Zealand and we were just flat SCG. Uh, and it was a terrible game. But it, it was how he set the camp up. Frank was great in camp. You know, he let the players be. Rudy was had to sleep in the afternoon and, you know, you had to eat this and do that. And training was pretty monotonous and, and boring and just there was no culture there within the group. 
So Frank started to develop culture. Frank developed culture before, um, you know, the AFL boffins decided they'd start talking about culture and try and build their teams. It was happening in football years before. So the Olympics in 88, you, I think, retired from the national team but came back for the Olympics. Is that correct? Yeah, I had. I yeah. finished in 86 and my second son, uh, Nathan's younger brother, Justin, was, was being born and uh, they had a tour to China and I thought, I don't want to go to China because I've been there before and it's pretty not a real great place. Um, certainly not worth missing a, a birth of your son for. So I didn't go. And I'd, I'd had enough. Sydney City had pretty much, it was the last season of Sydney City as well. They'd pretty much folded. Um, and so I thought, no, that was it. I'd had a, we'd played Czechoslovakia in a three-game series during the course of that year. And I think I was only 30. And um, I think I just, I just didn't feel like it was the right thing to stick around. You know, a lot of newer players had come into the squad and um, and I'm thick on, I'm big on like your mates, you know. Just, and I thought maybe I was like a little kid, you know, my mates aren't here so I don't want to play anymore but I thought I'd had enough. Um, and then I spent a year out, 87 out and then I thought oh, I've missed this a bit. Um and I'd, I'd had a, a pretty crappy season as well, 1987. I'd, Sydney City had folded. I'd left already because I had an idea that things weren't going to go well at the club and went to Sydney Olympic. And um, my mind was elsewhere. You've got to be fully focused. And I wasn't 100% mentally committed. Uh, physically, I, you know, I do all the work and stuff, and that wasn't a problem. I'd turn up for training, never miss sessions, any, that sort of stuff. But uh, the mental side of the game probably wasn't as good as it should have been. Um, so then I knuckled down and ended up getting a, a call up. Frank asked me if I'd be interested in coming back and I said, yeah. And started beginning of 88, scored a couple of goals in a game. I can't even remember who it was against. Was I think you scored against Nigeria in the tournament. Yeah, I did in, in yeah. the Olympics. Um, yeah, I can't remember who even it was against, but then I got back into the squad when we played New Zealand and Israel, funnily enough, in a, in a round robin to qualify. And we got through. So that was great. And then we had other um, tournaments. Argentina came out, the Gold Cup. That was when Charlie Anker scored that cracker. But I was sitting on the bench at that stage. Um, Graham Arnold was starting to emerge. And I think Frank was looking at, I was going on 32 and Arnie was just turning 21. So you look at the future. And I had no problem with that. Um, and then we went to Seoul. And I was still on the bench. And I remember having a conversation with Frank after game one. We played... We played Yugoslavia, we beat them 1-0. Mm -hmm. And I think the second game was... No, the second game was Brazil. Yeah. And they smashed us. Like, And I was on the bench for that. And they, Romario got a hat-trick and he probably could have had six. Right. Uh, he missed a penalty. I remember that in the second half. He already had three before that. Um, and I said to Frank, mate, I didn't come here for a holiday. Mm -hmm. and, I, and he said, well, I remember him saying this. He said, look, I, you know, it's like a reward for your season. I said, well... Or for your, your career. And I said, I don't want rewards for my career. I just want to play. And he let me play against Nigeria and I scored the winner. So I was happy with that. But then I was back on the bench again after that. But I pulled the pin. I went, remember, I went to talk to Frank. We had two weeks left. There was no um, charter flights back then. We still had 10 or 12 days to stay in Seoul. We were knocked out. After Russia beat us, I think it was 4-0. And there was a World Cup game coming up. And I just looked and I thought, I'm not going to get up and go to training every day. So I went and saw Frank and said, it's finished me, mate. I won't be available for New Zealand. I'm, thanks for the opportunity. I scored at the Olympics. I'm happy. Um, 
So I'll see you when we get on the plane. Right. And where did you go off to then? Were you just hanging oh, around? It was a, well, there was a whole, like it was the Olympic team. There was a whole stack of sports there. So you just went and it was a good party, put it that way. And it was everybody was involved, you know, it was from all around the world. So it was just fun. So let's, um, I'm conscious of the time and you need to get to the airport, but um, getting back to Adelaide United, as we mentioned, you know, we've talked about the inaugural season here at Adelaide United and 2003 to 2005 is probably considered the, um, the early years, but it was probably um, 06, 07 season that is seen as the end of that foundation era. So the 06, 07 A-League season. Um, just describe those first two A-League seasons. You know, the first ended as a, as premiers on top of the ladder and then the second with a grand final appearance. So I, I do have follow-up questions about the grand final, not too much. Yeah, no, 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 I'm aware of that. Um, look, the, there was a long gap between the NSL finishing in April 2004 yeah, and the A-League starting in 15 months. April and August, August 2005 was a kick-off of the A-League. And at one stage there, Gordon Pickard had, obviously underwritten Adelaide United sort of mark one in NSL uh, for that one season. And then he was crucial in the negotiations for the A-League actually getting off the ground and Adelaide having a team in it. So he got the licence. And um, I remember when I first, when he first like really seriously got involved with the club because he was basically like a, a big sponsor yeah. of Adelaide United mark one. Yeah. Basil Scarcella was the chairman. It was pretty much run by the Federation. Actually, funnily enough, um, this office that we're sitting in, um, yeah. we had our first Adelaide United meeting in here. I, never, I just remembered it now. Um, and I got announced as a coach and I was standing just over there and addressed all these Adelaide City guys because yeah, right. I pretty much took the nuts and bolts of the Adelaide City team and asked a few people I knew about anyone else that might be worth a look at. So I got a few others in as well. And that's where it all started. Um, in what would have been... Late September 2003. Okay, so, like so that first season was the foundation. We we did pretty. We came third in the league that year, mm -hmm. and we came third in the competition. We got smashed by Perth over there. Yeah. That's the game I won't forget either because it um, it just wasn't. There was a lot of little things that went wrong, and people stuck their noses in, not players, management people, stuck their noses into things they shouldn't have, and it had a lot to do with it influenced the mentality of the team on that trip um, and they knew about it as well because I was already at loggerheads with the chairman at that stage because okay. he had a he had this um, I remember having this the discussion it was an 80-20 principle he said I could have 80% of the say but he had 20 but it was like his 20 counted for 80 um, and it didn't work right. so it was an interesting time yeah I don't know if we brought, if that came up the last time we talked about no, it, it. So that's interesting it didn't um, but anyway long story short that worked Adelaide United worked we sort of captured the hearts and minds of the, not yeah. even the, the soccer public. Yeah, everyone. It was yeah, the whole it, yeah. state, the whole city. It was unbelievable. And, um, and 17,500 people here that first night, no one, no one ever expected it. I don't even think about it. It's like you want to tear up the hairs in the back of your neck. It was an amazing night. Um, that was a, we didn't want all that to die. So Picard actually got, became more hands-on. And I remember Gordon set us up in, it wasn't, anything to do with the federation anymore it was a separate it was a private enterprise and gordon was the owner and so we set up in his um in fairmont house on north terrace 
and that was the office. And I remember he came to me one day and he said, look, I'm a builder. Um, you're a football coach. I'm not going to tell you how to you – know, I don't expect you to tell me how to build houses. I'm not going to tell you how to build a football team. Anything you think you need, come to me if I think it's okay and you can explain yourself. Not a problem. And that's how the that's how the relationship with Gordon was. It was great. He was so supportive, and he didn't stick his nose in. Okay. He didn't have opinion. He asked about things, yep. but he never had an opinion. He never passed judgment. Um, and you could get advice from him if you needed it. Um, and it was it was great. It was a really good working relationship. And so that off season, after it all settled down, and Adelaide United were in the competition. Um, We'd trained since November 2004 and we didn't start till August. So they talk about long pre-seasons yeah. now. This was yeah. really long. And some players um, were still playing in the local league, weren't yeah, they? We yeah, we staggered how we did it. Um, we managed players that had a really good conditioning coach, Nick Hadjikostas, who was way ahead of his time. Um, Nick's still around now, um, but not with football, unfortunately. Um, but we worked, we had everything planned. And we needed to do something else just to, to just tweak the mentality of the team. And I thought we should go on a camp for a week. And I went to Gordon and said, I want to go to Coffs Harbour because the Wallabies were starting to stay at, at Coffs Harbour then. And it was starting to, they'd already won a World Cup prior. I think they won their second World Cup. They won in 90, they won in 91 and they won in 2003, I think. They won in 2003 or 99? I think it was 99, but was it 03? Yeah, they won in 91, I know that. Yeah. And the 99 they won, and that, but they have been spending time at Coffs Harbour. And I thought this might actually work. So I went to Gordon and said, my budget priced it all up. And I went to Gordon and said, this is what I want to do. And he said, how much are you going to cost? And I said, probably at least 50, 60 grand. And he went, do you think it'll work? And I said, we need it. He said, okay, sign a check. Off we went. It was fantastic. And it, it did. It was the icing on the cake. It was just what we needed. And we went through that year. We lost, I think, four games out of um, – but we played well. And we won the league by seven points. And we won the competition with three or four games to spare. Finals, though, we, we – as was Adelaide's um, – I remember. Preliminary final here. Well, yeah. yeah. But, um, we should never have lost to the Central Coast. But then we played Sydney three games in a row as well. And um, Yeah, with the two-leg system back. Yeah. Then. yeah. It didn't – it um, just – we got a we, I think we drew two all over there. We drew two all here. We lost over there. Um, anyway, we didn't. We had to play the prelim against Central Coast, and um, I won't mention his name because he probably doesn't. He remembers it enough himself. But we had a player make a glaring mistake early in the first half, and Tommy Pondiliak got a tap in, and that's the way it stayed. Yeah, yeah, I was in the crowd. I remember it. So, um, but that was good. And then season two was um, interesting. Gordon stepped back, let Nick Bianca take over, and um, culture started to change a bit, okay. and not in a positive sense. Um, there was a little bit more interference from a coach's perspective than I was happy with. Um, it's just influence. There were external influences that we've been able to keep away from the team that were suddenly now getting um, a little bit too close, and there was a bit of a hanger-on factor as well. And it's not a good thing when you've got blokes that just want to hang around football teams. Yeah. They rub shoulders with players. It, um, so you had a bit of that, and that wasn't great. But anyway, long story short, we still did well, but 
Um, we ended up, we played our grand final beating Newcastle in the prelim final here. Carl Viet! Carl Viet has scored the first goal in the preliminary final. New Charlotte save from Beltrame. Adelaide are through to the grand final. Heartbreak for Newcastle. Ecstasy for the team in red. Sheer pandemonium around Hindmarsh Stadium. And John Cosmina has finally made his way through to a title decider. I was there for that one too, I remember. Yeah. And I remember, um, I won't ask you what you said to the ref, but... I didn't, well, look, I'll tell you now. <laughs> I'll tell you now on my kids' lives. Yeah. I never said what he said I said. Right. I will admit this though, I did say what he said I said about three years before that, coaching <laughs> for, in Brisbane. Right. To uh, him? Yeah, same right. bloke. Right. But I, when he, in that game, yeah, that's not did not said. happen. And okay. I actually went to um, the Deaf Society and went to a lip reader yeah. and had the video read mm-hmm. and they agreed as well. I didn't say what they accused me of saying. Interesting. Simple as that. Adelaide United's spirited coach John Cosmina has accepted his five-week suspension for the time being. Apparently the appeal process, um, if it was going to happen, would happen on Sunday morning and I've got more important things to think about. So I'll cop that on a jaw for the time being and then I'll have a chat with my solicitor when I get back to Adelaide next week. Yeah, right. Well, I was going to say that in, in that grand final, um, you're obviously banned from the, from the touchline. We all know what happened. We don't need to go over the game necessarily. But what I'm interested in is um, the 24 hours after that. What, was, what do you remember I'll, I'll about that? I'll say one thing about the game. Kevin Musket should have been red carded. Oh, he got sent off in the first half. Yep. Kevin Musket should have been sent off in the first couple of minutes. His tackle on Diego Walsh was disgraceful. It's as simple as that. Yet he got away with it. Ross didn't. And Ross's tackle was innocuous compared to Muskie's tackle. And that was Diego out for the game. Simple yeah. as that. Yep. Yeah, it, was, it had a huge impact. It's almost like, you know, from an Adelaide point of view, it's like there were two sets of rules. So, but then that's the way we thought then anyway. We yeah. created a siege mentality and there was a set of rules for the East Coast and a set of rules for, for us instead. We like being a thorn in the side of the East Coast. Yeah, good. I think that still exists today, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah, that 24 hours after that game, what was that like? Um, what do you remember? Oh, look, we just... Um, we went to a nightclub somewhere. Nick Bianco put on a tab on the bar and everyone just had a lot of... Um, Drowning of sorrows, okay. and then we flew back the next day, and then the, um, I guess the shit hit the fan in a way because, I mean Ross had been sent off, but Mickey Valcanis lost the plot, uh, an abuser referee as he walked back into the dressing room, uh, I think Carl Viet made a statement in the press conference that raised the hackles of some of the officials. Um, I'd done, I can't remember what I said. I'd said something in the press conference as well, although I was, I think I'd, um, I was, I was careful how I phrased it because I was under the pump at that time. I knew they were looking for anything. And, um, but that didn't make any difference. Nick was embarrassed, and I'd rightly so. I'd invested a lot of money, we got beat 6 0. And uh, I actually thought it was five because when I came down from where I was allowed to watch the game from, it was 5 0. And I got down and I said, I looked at the, 
someone was talking about six. I said, "What's six goal?" I looked at the scoreboard and it was six nil. So yeah, right. I, but you go down through the bows of um, yeah. Eddie. So you didn't hear it. the cheer or anything. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, though it was a pretty crappy sort of time, uh, and then I I think I resigned within was it 20, 48 hours? What day? I don't even know. We played on a Sunday. Yeah. Back on the Monday, we had a barbecue here for the punters. And uh, we came to that, and then I think next day or the day after, I quit. Mm. As you would all realise, these past few weeks have been harrowing for a lot of people. After a lot of thought and soul searching, I am resigning my position as head coach of Adelaide United. It's a decision I've made in the best interest of my family, and as importantly, the team. Yeah, right. So, had had you had it in your head beforehand that you might resign, or was it no? I'd had a meeting. I met with the board, and um, it wasn't going to go anywhere. So it was time to move on. Fair enough. So um, how's your relationship now with Kevin Musket? We all know about the oh, incident look, on the sideline. Did you go to the World Cup together? And, like, yeah, host we did, Australians? 2010. Muskie's all right. Yeah. He's, look, yeah. I know what Muskie's like. Yeah. And um, I know what – I know. he's an interesting character. I get on well with him. Okay. Um, we don't talk very often. It's yeah. not like he's my best mate and I ring him up every day, put it that way. Yeah. Okay. Um, but when we see each other, we'll have a beer, and a bit of a laugh and a chat and a joke and – now, Kevin Musker and John Cosmina having a real set to on the sideline. This will tell us more. Well, he did. He shoved him off his chair, didn't he? John Cosmina, whilst you're uh, watching the replay, has been sent to the stands. Does that, no, the, 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 the choking thing, ever come up? The choking incident? No, we've never, ever discussed it. Really? Never discussed it. Interesting. It didn't come up on that trip at all in, no. in 2010? No, oh, we sort of buried the hatchet. I, we, we talked about stuff, but I can't even remember what it was. God, that was ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, um, I can't remember what I did ten. What did we talk about ten minutes ago? <laughs> I don't know. I have to check the tape. Yeah, so that was it. And then I think Ross went the day after that. Alawisi. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an interesting time. It was a bit of a purge. Yeah, yeah it was a bit of a change at that, yeah. at that point. Um, one of the things I remember from your time here at United was uh, you sitting in a Bunnings chair, sipping coffee, much like you have been. During this this podcast, it's sort of become a bit synonymous, uh, similar to Italian coaches smoking on the sideline. I'm intrigued. Like, what was it? Just because you wanted a coffee? Was yeah, it? I'd, is it just I'd, a, a superstitious? No, I'd probably be. You know, a lot of people would consider me addicted to coffee. Right. Uh, I might have five or six a day. Some days I'll have more. Some days I'll have less. Mm-hmm. But there wouldn't be many days go by where I don't have at least five coffees. Although today that is only number three. Oh, really? But then it's a double shot, so how do, you, oh, how do you count it? Well, there you go. I guess it's th- three and so four in one Yeah, hit. it could be six. <laughs> so, but coffee's good for you. Yeah. I think it is anyway. Yeah, well, so I drink it's just it. A, look, it could be chewing gum, and then I stopped chewing gum years ago because um, you'd chew it. I never swallow gum. You should spit it out, and I thought, this isn't real good, and there's never been on the side, and you end up with it on your boots. Some player gets it. So um, everyone's got different habits. I just like the coffee. It's, it's almost relaxing. Yeah, well, a social thing. Football's a social event. Yeah, that's true. You always looked relaxed while you were sitting in the chair. Oh, I don't know, like sometimes the I would be, sometimes I wouldn't. Yeah. That um, a lot going on inside. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, I imagine it would be, of course. But I mean, even now, I'm still, you know, when I have recently coached, that um, sometimes you still get that. You almost kick the ball. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like you want to make the action yourself, but you know, it's obviously it's not. But you can feel it. It's like, oh, and you just twinge a little bit because you. How hard is it to keep that in check when you're on the sideline? Um, you've got to be conscious of it. 
It's, it's easy if you're not aware to lose it. And I did used to lose it a lot, but then I used to think, well, you know, bugger it. It's like, like for me, it was just no different to training. Like coaching was the same as playing. You just play the win and that was the way it was. Yeah. Uh, and you can get away with a lot in the park um, yeah. as a player. You don't on a coach on the sideline, as a coach on the sideline. Did, did you ever make the connection with the caffeine and potentially losing it on the sideline that maybe they were connected? No, no. I <laughs> just used to drink instant coffee. Yeah, okay. I mean, you go back to when I started coaching and it's not many, I don't think too many clubs had... Um, the coffee machine there or an espresso machine in the bar. They just had Nescafe and that was it. And that's the worst stuff you can ever drink. Um, look, I know we're running out of time, but Dexter Rosales, take, take me inside the transfer that never happened. The who? Dexter Rosales. Oh, God, it's funny. I was thinking about that the other week. Mate of mine was an agent. Um, he'd done a lot of research. He had an Argentinian guy that had, had like a diploma or some sort of doc- doctorate of football from a university in Argentina, and this guy was pretty switched on. He did a whole lot of research on players. Anyway, this guy, this agent bloke had um, got a couple of good players that we looked at, and then he sent this other bloke through, and I went, he looks okay. Um, Had a grainy sort of video because you just got CDs and things then. Um, I mean, we still get weird links sent to us now. And so, look, I looked at it, and... Michael Petrillo was a football manager, and I said, let's look at this bloke. He looks okay, and leave it up to you. And he knew the guy, the agent, that had given him to me. So it was a trusted agent. Yeah, I knew the bloke, and Michael knew him as well. And he's Adelaide-born. He's not around here now. He lives in Sydney, but um, I actually call him Max because he's like a secret agent. Because he's the agent that you have when you don't have an agent. Um, But he got Fernando Rec. He was Fernando Rec's agent, so... Um, he, for me, he was credible and I'd known him. He was connected to, we had a relationship and he had a relationship with Michael as well. So I handed it over to Petrillo and next thing I heard, it was a, a big fudge up. Yeah, right. Simple as that. Okay. What was the reaction inside the club at that time once you guys found out? No, oh, we sort of laughed it off a bit. It was a bit embarrassing. I, the guy actually wrote me a long apology and I said, look, don't apologize to me. Because I can sort of brush it off and get through it. You need to apologise to the powers that be at the club. And I think he apologised to Greg Griffin, who was the chairman at the time. Um, there was a massive stuff up. So um, I could be easy to say it wasn't my fault, but maybe I should have been a bit more diligent. Right. Well, It's no big deal. These things no, happen. They do. Yeah, it's a funny story now. We can all have a chuckle about it. Yeah, but it actually Appreciate worked out all right. Up. Because if Dexter wasn't a phony, we wouldn't have got um, uh, Marcello Karuska. Oh, well, there you go. It was the next in line. Right. That was the next video that came across my desk. And this one I made sure I did a lot of research on before I passed it on to Petrillo. Yeah, okay. So it was it was the, the transfer that never happened that had to happen for us to get cello. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's move on. So then you came back to Adelaide um, in 2011 as a caretaker initially. And two years later, you stood down in January 2013. So the details back then of why you left were a little grey at the time, but what is the real story? Like, Why did you leave the second oh, the time? The real story will stay with me. Um, there were things that I wasn't happy with um, at all. The internal culture left a bit to be desired um, and it wasn't going to work. And I thought, right, I'm not going to be able to sort this one out. It's almost, I felt like um, it needed a massive kick in the backside needed a shock to the system 
Um, and I didn't sacrifice myself. I wasn't happy at the time. We were actually doing all right. But the, for, for a team that was actually playing not too bad, there were lots of little bits and pieces going on underneath. And it wasn't fixable, certainly from a coaching perspective. So I took the view that I can leave on my terms and I wanted to surprise everybody when I did that. Um, or I can sit here and have a death by a thousand cuts. So I chose to walk when I felt like it, and that was that's the way it went. I won't go into all of the, the real nitty gritty of it. I think the I think the press release I made, which you probably read or have a copy of somewhere, yeah. that um, that suggests recently, but that no. suggests enough for for people. And it's funny because um, I did hear recently that um, I think I talked about whispering people whispering around corners. Um, someone actually said. It uh, made it not public, but it was passed on to me that um, it was mentioned that maybe I was right at the time. Okay. Maybe we'll just leave it right there then. So let's end on a uh, on a on a positive note. Um, so, what are some of the standout memories from your time at Adelaide United? What what on or off the field? What, what oh, sticks with you? For, uh, the standout memory is, um, I guess, the biggest ones that. Um, first game yeah. against my the club I'd coached the year before, Brisbane Strikers. Um, here, 17th of October 2003, it was an unbelievable night. That was um, exceptional. No one ever, ever expected it to be that way. Mm. And like just a month after the club was founded. Yeah. yeah. So that that was great. The grand final, as much as we lost, it was, a, it was an experience. And, you know, you need you need to have the good and the bad. You can't just you know, or have the good. And I think, you know, I mean, I've set myself up probably for, you know, to get a smack in the chops every now and then, and that's the way I am. But um, maybe we needed one, I don't know. But, you know, there's always a lesson underneath. There's always something to be learned from, from everything that, <clears throat> that does happen on a football field or off it, but around a football team, good or bad. There's always stuff to be learned. So there was the grand final, I enjoyed that. Um, you know, I worked for Fox when Adelaide won the grand final in 2015-16 season at Adelaide Oval, and that was <clears throat> that was special. It was like, you know, and as much as you know, I'm supposed to be impartial. Um, it brought a tear to my eye because it was it was in Adelaide, my hometown, and it was a team that I'd started years before um, or been involved in. So that was special, um, and just to see players that you've worked with that, that go on to the bigger and better things. But, um, and I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. It'd probably be... Bruce Chitte. Yeah, Brucey. I mean, it's good to see Bruce back at the club now. Yeah. You know, I just did an interview with Robbie Cornthwaite. Yeah. I remember Robbie was a 15-year-old and we played a pre-season game, just a trial game, before Adelaide United actually it kicked off down at Norlunga, and he played. And I looked at him and I thought, this guy's got a bit about him, and yet he wasn't in the system. He hadn't been in the sassy system. Uh, which is why he hadn't been flagged before that. So I brought him in and he stayed. So And then Robbie's gone on and had a decent career as well. So that sort of stuff. Nathan Burns, I took, you know, Burnsy along with Bruce out of the, the AIS. You know, and Burnsy had a great career. He could have gone on to, you know, be a, things would have worked out a lot better than it has. I think he's made some, he could have made some better decisions um, in terms of how he went about things. Um, but that was the way it was. So to, to see that and then obviously working, I worked with the Socceroos at the Asian Cup in 2007. That was pretty good. 
So from that side of stuff, at um, Adelaide United gave me all of that, gave me that leg into to all of that. You know, even you know, getting going to Sydney and getting sacked, it was, um, you know, I went back to sort of almost not my roots, but I went back to the eastern suburbs of Sydney, which I love. You know, and I lived down at Bondi for six months, and that was a great part. <laughs> I've been working for Sydney FC. Um, you get up and go for a run on the beach at five o'clock every morning. It was fantastic. Um, you know, and it's it's and you know being involved at the beginning of the A League because it has come a long way. And I know it's got its problems at the moment, but uh, just looking back over it, you know, it's nice to say I was there at the start. And I do take a bit of, I guess, perverse delight in um, a couple of things. One, I was at the start of the A League. But I also scored the very first goal at the start of the National League in 1977. And I'm still here. So I figure I've been lucky. At least, if I'm nothing else, I'm resilient. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much, John, for having a chat to me. I know you've got a flight to catch, so we'll wrap it up there. And um, hopefully I'll get to catch you again next time you're in Adelaide. Not a problem. It's fun. Thanks. <laughs>